G'day, my name's Thomas. I'm one of the elders here at the branch and I'll be taking you through Hebrews chapter 13 today. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, we just pray that as we come to this last chapter of Hebrews that you would be with us. I pray that you'd open up this passage to us. Help us to know what you are saying to us and be with me, Lord, as I open up your word. Help me to be faithful to your word and help us to understand what you are saying and help us to apply it to our lives. Amen. A number of years ago, a relative, I think it was an aunt or an uncle, gave me a novel for my birthday. The title of the book was Miss Smiller's Feeling for Snow. And if the title sounds odd, it was because the book was a bit odd. The book starts in Denmark and it ends up in Greenland as the main characters pursue this bizarre conspiracy theory to the frozen wastes of Greenland. Now, you know when you read a book and you get near the end and you think the author is going to start tying everything together soon. We're heading for the conclusion. We're going to find out what the book is really about, what the answer is, what the conclusion is. Well, as I got closer and closer to the end of this book, I could see the page numbers dwindling. And yet, the conclusion was nowhere in sight. The plot seemed to be just as unraveled as ever. As I turned the last page, I thought, the author must be going to tie everything together very soon. And then I got to the last paragraph, the last sentence, and everything was still up in the air. Our hero was chasing the villain across some ice floe in the Arctic. And there it was, the last word of the book. What happened? What happened to the hero, to the villain, to the mystery? There was no conclusion, nothing. I checked the page numbers, the end of the book. There must be a printing error. There must be more to this book. But there wasn't. The author had deliberately left the book, the storyline, unresolved, completely up in the air, with the hero chasing the villain across a chunk of ice in the Arctic. And every now and then, we read a book that is like that, unresolved. But the book of Hebrews is not like that. It does not leave things up in the air. Today, we look at the last chapter of Hebrews. Over the last few months, we've been on a journey through the book of Hebrews. It's certainly not always an easy book to follow. The arguments are complex. Yet even though it is a complex book in many ways, its arguments are actually clear. The book consistently delivers the same message, that God has made a way for us to come into his presence through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. And the final chapter we look at today brings everything together to a conclusion, a practical conclusion, which means that we know how to apply the message of Hebrews to our everyday lives. The last chapter of Hebrews focuses on two things. Firstly, living a holy life. And secondly, further teaching and some concluding statements on Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And these two points are not separate. They are connected. At the beginning of this chapter, the author of Hebrews tells us to love one another. And then he gives some very practical and specific ways of how we can do that. 
Ways that involve giving up greed and giving to others and being content with what we have. And we can afford to do that because we are assured that God will provide our needs. We're also urged to look to our leaders as examples of how to live holy lives. We're also urged to submit and obey them as we seek to live holy lives. And then, returning to his main theme in the book, the author of Hebrews brings us back again to what Jesus did for us on the cross, as well as teaching us that not only did the blood of Jesus restore us back to God, but it also equips us to live holy lives that please God. So, just before we unpack that, let's remember again what this chapter is about. Living a holy life by loving others, self-sacrificial love that gives, that is willing to give because we know that God provides for us. And looking to our leaders who model that for us, and to Jesus whose sacrifice is the only way to God, and which also gives us the power to live a holy life. Now, if you haven't already read this passage, please pause the video now, read Hebrews chapter 13, and then resume the video. Let's now look at the first section. Some very specific commands about living holy lives by loving each other. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 1 to 5 says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by, so, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, there's a number of commands here that might seem somewhat unrelated to each other, from hospitality to keeping away from sexual immorality. But there is a common thread. And that is brotherly love to those who are not in our family unit, to those who are not like us or in our circle of family or friends. In the NIV in verse 1, where it says, loving one another as brothers and sisters, there is just one word in Greek, Philadelphia. And Philadelphia refers to the love that family members have for each other. In the world of that time, People generally did not love or care for those people who were outside their family unit. And if they did love those outside their family unit, it might extend as far as their close friends. And if you really stretched it, it might extend to their ethnic group, their language group or their nation, but definitely no further. It did not extend to strangers, to people you didn't know, not to people far away, to people who are different to you. Yet here, the author of Hebrews tells us to love with brother type of love, brotherly love, the love that you show to family members. But he's telling us to show that love to those outside our family unit. How far? Well, we see in verse 2, to show that love to strangers. 
Now, when we read in verse 2 that we are to show hospitality to strangers, it is talking about more than a cup of tea to someone you don't know. The Greek idea of hospitality was much more than just providing morning tea, but it was welcoming, making a place for, caring for, loving strangers. In other words, we are being told to show family type of love to strangers. That is to people we don't know, people who are not like us, people who are not in our ethnic, social or national group. You know, this coronavirus world has shown up the fractures in our world as borders, even state borders, and they are closed for good health reasons. We need to be careful that we don't withdraw into ourselves and only look out for ourselves. I've had to check myself these last few months. Aren't we Tasmanians doing well with coronavirus? I'm snug and safe. And we have to be careful that we don't make pariahs of Victorians, let alone other people in other parts of the world where the virus is much worse. As geopolitical tensions start to escalate, it's important that we still love people from other countries, from other religions, from other political systems. That doesn't mean we have to agree with their religions or their political systems. We probably don't. But that doesn't mean that we don't love them with family type of love. As we see Black Lives Matter people march in the US and here in Australia, we can narrow in on the negative things in those movements and there certainly are negative things. But we can also listen to the cry, the plead for justice and help, and love people who may not be like us, people whose life experience may be quite different to ours. You see, in these two verses, we are not being told to extend family type of love to those in our families, but we are told to extend it to those outside our families, outside our comfort zones. And now we come to verse 3. We are told to remember those people in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now this is not just some mental remembering could you have something on your mind but it's the remembering of action that helps those in prison. Or who are mistreated. The author of Hebrews is probably not thinking of people in prison for burglary or murder, but he's thinking of people in prison and who are mistreated because they follow Jesus. People like Timothy, who we read in verse 23 at the end of this chapter, who has just been released from prison, where he had been locked up because he followed Jesus. We may not know anyone personally who is in prison or mistreated for following Jesus, but around the world, many people are. Some of my colleagues overseas are harassed by the security forces of their country because of their faith. In other countries, people really are in prison because of their faith. We need to remember them in practical ways. Then comes verse 4 where we are reminded about the need to be sexually pure. It reads, Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. 
Now where it says marriage bed here, it means marital sex. So this verse is both an affirmation of the sanctity and purity of sex within heterosexual marriage, as well as a warning that sex is only for heterosexual marriage. Again, this is all part of living a holy life and loving each other. Because if you have sex outside marriage, that is not showing love to the other person's spouse or future spouse or to the person that you are having sex with. Living pure lives of love, aiming for holiness, is not easy. And now we are told how to live a holy life, a life of love for others. Verses 5 and 6 tell us, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What stops you from loving? What stops us from loving? What stops us from helping strangers in material ways for providing for their needs? Often, it's a fear of giving our money away of wanting to make sure that we have more for that rainy day or because I think I deserve more. But we are told to be content with what we have, knowing that God will provide our needs, knowing that God looks after us, helps us to be content with what we have and keeps us from grasping after more money and helps us to give away our money, our time and our effort as we show family love to those who are strangers. But we are also helped by being told to follow our leaders. Verse 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, as one of the elders of the branch, I find that verse a bit daunting, but yet it's true. That as leaders, we aren't just here to make decisions or provide pastoral oversight, as important as those things are, but our lives are supposed to be examples of holiness. And that's one reason why in the qualifications for elders and other church leaders in 1 Timothy and Titus, we find character at the top of the list. And just this week, if you remember, you would have received an email from Carl calling for elder nominations for the upcoming AGM in September. As you consider nominations, bear in mind that church leaders are people who should have a faith, a way of life that deserves imitation. And with some trepidation, as one of those leaders, this verse tells us to look to our leaders, to our pastors, elders and other ministry leaders as an example of a faith and way of life to follow. Now, of course, us human leaders won't be perfect, and I know that only too well. But now in verse 8, we are pointed to one who is perfect and who remains perfect forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And this is the author's segue to teach us yet more about Jesus' sacrifice. Verse 9 reads, from verse 9 reads, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. 
It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. These few words teach us more about what Jesus did, as well as drawing together the teaching about Jesus' sacrifice that we find throughout Hebrews. But what does it all mean? What does it mean to have an altar which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat? Uh, and what is this talk about the bodies being burned outside the camp? What on earth is the author of Hebrews going on about? Again, he is referring back to the sacrificial system and in particular to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And he is also referring back to his own arguments in chapters 8 and 9 in Hebrews. You might remember that in Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews compares the earthly tabernacle or tent with the heavenly one. He talks about the Old Testament sacrificial system and the tabernacle or the temple. Now, there are different sections in the tabernacle, but the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, also known as the most holy place, symbolized the very presence of God. And you might remember that only the high priest could go there. And even then, he could only go there once per year. And when he went there, he had to take the blood of a sacrificial animal with him. The lack of easy access to the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, showed that our sin, our wrongdoing, our rebellion against God had not yet been dealt with once and for all under the Old Testament sacrificial system. But Jesus did deal with our sin once and for all. Jesus went into the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, into the heavenly holy of holies, not with the blood of bulls or goats, but with his own blood. And so here in chapter 13, verse 10, when the author of Hebrews talks about an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat, he is talking of that heavenly altar. Not the one in the earthly temple, which was for a limited time only, and which was imperfect, but the perfect heavenly one on which Jesus made his once for all sacrifice. In verse 11, the author of Hebrews makes another point from the Day of Atonement, as recorded in Leviticus chapter 16. You see, while the blood of the animals that was sacrificed was brought into the Holy of Holies, the body of the animals themselves were not burnt on the grounds of the tabernacle. They were taken outside to be burnt, not just outside of the tabernacle, but outside of the Israelite camp. We read this in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27, where it says, The bull and the goat for the sin offerings 
whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh and intestines are to be burnt up. And in Jesus' day, they did this also. While the blood of the animals was taken into the temple, the bodies were taken outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem and burnt there. The author of Hebrews makes this point about Jesus too in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, where it says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. In other words, the cross where Jesus died was outside the walls of Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus' dying outside the city gates was consistent with the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the animal's blood was taken into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, but the bodies of those animals were destroyed outside the camp. In the same way, Jesus' blood, in a spiritual sense, was taken into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly temple, as it says in Hebrews 9.12. But his body suffered and died on a cross outside the city gates. What does this mean for us? Well, in verse 13 and 14, it says, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. It's true that following Jesus can bring us disgrace in the eyes of non-Christians. Many non-Christians think that we are ridiculous and laughable at best, and at worst think that we're wrong and that we hate others, when nothing is further from the truth or should be further from the truth. But despite the disgrace, we are called to follow Jesus. Why? Because, like the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, we are looking for an enduring city, one that will last forever. As it says in verse 14, we realise that in this world we do not have an enduring city. Nothing in this world will remain. Nothing will last forever but only that which is coming. And like the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, we set our eyes on the city which is coming. And it's keeping our eyes on that future city that the author comes back again to the theme of doing good and loving others. Verses 15 and 16 say, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Jesus sacrificed himself, so that we no longer need to bring sacrifices of bulls and goats, but we are called to bring a sacrifice of praise, which is what? It says here it is doing good to others, sharing with others. That sort of family type of love to strangers that gives and shares with others that the author of Hebrews opened this chapter with. So 
That brings us back again to holy living, which in Hebrews 13 is that family sort of love, brotherly love to others. How do we do it? How can we love others? Give to them out of what we have? Remember, it's firstly by remembering that God provides our needs and also by looking to our leaders as an example and particularly to Jesus. But most of all, we are equipped to do this by what Jesus did on the cross. Let's look at verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There are two really important things to notice in these verses. Firstly, God equips us to do his will. He does this through Jesus Christ. He brought Jesus back from the dead so that he is now alive forevermore. It is God through the work of Jesus Christ who equips us, who gives us the power to do good and to carry out God's will. And the second thing to notice is that our Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. We are the sheep and we are not left without a leader, a shepherd, who not only gave his life for us, but who guides us in doing his will. Friends, we now conclude our series on Hebrews chapter 13. In many ways, it's a tough book to understand. The author uses a lot of complex arguments. But if you drill down and study them and refer back to the Old Testament passages that his arguments are based on, you will see how rich this book is, how much this book helps us to understand what Jesus did on the cross. You'll also see how consistent his reasonings are and how everything ties together, how Jesus' sacrifice also makes so much sense out of the Old Testament, in particular books like Leviticus. And in chapter 13, hopefully you will see that unlike the novel I was given all those years ago, that Hebrews does not leave us up in the air. It does not leave us conclusionless. But rather, we can know for sure a number of things. That Christ died for our sins once and for all. With his sacrifice, he made the way open to God, not for everyone, but for all who trust in him and follow him. We also know that not only did he make atonement for our sins, but he also calls us to live a life of holiness, a life that leaves sin behind. He calls us to love others, not just family members or those close to us or like us, but he calls us to love strangers, those different to us, those not like us. And we can do that because we know that he supplies our needs. Because he has given us examples to follow, particularly the example of Jesus himself. And best of all, God also equips us to do his will, to love like he does, to do good like he does. 
But friends, this is not for everyone, but it's only for those who will follow Christ, for those who will take up their cross and follow him, sometimes in disgrace in the eyes of the world. It's for those who do not seek a home here on this earth, this earth which will perish and rot and decay over time, but for those who seek the city that is to come, the heavenly city that will last forever. If you follow Christ, stick with him. And if you don't follow Jesus Christ, I urge you, consider Christ, put your trust in him, follow him, and seek to obey his commands. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you that you teach us here what you have done on the cross for us. Thank you also that you've called us to a life of holy living. I pray that you would continue to equip us to live a life that is holy and that pleases you. Lord, I also pray for any who are listening to this message who do not yet know you. I pray that you'd help to open their hearts to see the wonderful things that you've done for them. And I pray that you'd help them to place their trust in you and to follow you. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.